You know, sometimes we shrink God. For example, are you aware that there are some Jewish rabbis who teach that there must be two messiahs? Because these well-meaning rabbis cannot understand or reconcile the attitude or the outlook or the prophecy of a suffering messiah and a conquering messiah. When they look at passages in Isaiah and other places and see that Messiah will on the one hand suffer and on the other hand conquer, they conclude there must therefore be two messiahs. They understand that on the one hand, there'll be a suffering messiah, other hand, a messiah who will succeed, on the one hand, a messiah who will wilt, and and on the other hand, win, a messiah who will be rejected, but on the other hand, will rule. And they had come to the uh, conclusion, the erroneous conclusion, that there are two messiahs to expect. We, on the other hand, because of God's great mercy and grace and love and completed Bible, we look at the Old and the New Testaments together and we see that there is one messiah and his name is the Lord Jesus Christ. And he has come twice. He has come, will come twice. The first time he came as the lion of the tribe of Judah. Excuse me. Second time as the lion of the tribe of Judah. The first time as the lamb for sinners slain. One Messiah, two returns. And so the question or the debate between the number of Messiahs is really a largely a debate over how big God is. Is God big enough to send one Messiah to be both a sufferer and a conqueror? Is he big enough for that? Or is he small enough that he must send one Messiah to suffer and the other Messiah to conquer? When you come to that conclusion that God is too small, then you have two small Messiahs. When we have a small view of God, it creates all kinds of problems in our worldview and our interpretation of life's circumstances. And so as you're listening to this uh, sermon on Hebrews 2.10, one verse, so rich packed with meaning, we'll break it into two parts, believe it or not, today's a part one. When we look at this verse, we're going to see just how important it is to understand God's largeness when it comes to redemption and the sufferings of the Savior, the Messiah. Now, The Jews that first read the book of Hebrews, the converted Jews, the Messianic Jews, the Jews who trusted the Lord Jesus Christ to be their Lord and Savior like Gentiles did in the New Testament, the first readers of the book of Hebrews were Jewish Christians. They saw Jesus Christ as the promised Messiah. They repented of sin. They put their full faith and trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ, and they were saved just like we are saved in this era. And that, on a good day, irritated the Christ rejectors that were around them. And that, on a typical day, infuriated the persons who were around these converted Jewish Christians. To say that their lives after they came to Christ got more difficult would be as much of an understatement as saying some of the potholes in Nassau need to be fixed. They had new enemies, and they had new problems. Rome crucified them 
when they put Jesus ahead of Caesar. And organized Judaism kicked them out when they centered on the Lord instead of the law. And they also had a new temptation. They had the temptation of having buyer's remorse. I mean, sizing up Judaism and saying, this thing isn't going to fizzle out anytime too soon, but this new thing about Jesus Christ, well, you never know. It might not last. It might be a flash in the pan. Maybe we should just play it safe. Maybe we should walk away from this Jesus and go back to what's comfortable and known and safe, and we could restore relationships for business. We could bring our families close together again without the controversy of Jesus. They had a new temptation. They had a temptation to throw the towel in on following Jesus so they could stay on some religious list and stay off of some Roman crosses. Perhaps the talk on the street was the one actually needed a savior who made bad guys suffer instead of a savior who suffered at the hands of bad guys. And all of this is pretty daily, pretty relentless. This whole situation didn't take a day off, didn't take a time out, didn't go on sleep, and didn't go on vacation. It was no time to have a small God. The first readers of the book of Hebrews really needed to get it straight that their God was big. They had no room for margin. They were like the tightrope walker walking over Niagara Falls. They had no margin of error. They had to see God as big as God is, or they would be in trouble. They needed to see God as the scripture portrays him as being big, vast, infinite. Is that how you see God this morning? For them back then and for us today, a small God can't see, out of, see us out of times of trial and trouble. A small God won't solve our problems. Actually, a small view of God will cause us more problems. And so, how do you see God? How big is he? Is he small? Is he medium? Is he large? Is he extra large? Or is he infinite? How big is your God? There was a washerwoman in Great Britain many years ago who worked very hard and made very little money and just always was scrape, scraping and scrimping and trying to make ends meet. She was a hard-working, honest woman. She just had a hard life financially. Someone knew how tired she was as a washwoman, and they asked her if they, they could take her on a holiday to the coast of Ireland. And they took her. And she was standing, looking at the vista of the bluff of the Atlantic Ocean, she started weeping. And the people who took her on the holiday said, oh, now, now, what's, what's wrong? I've never seen anything 
that was enough. She looked at the ocean and she said, it's enough. God made the ocean. He's enough. More than enough. He's vast. He's infinite. We take our Bibles and we look at our key verse for this morning, Hebrews 2.10, and it says, For it was fitting for him for whom are all things and through whom are all things in bringing many sons to glory to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. That is an interesting verse layered with much meaning. But basically, it's showing us that it takes a big plan of salvation to include a suffering Savior. And a big plan of salvation demands a bigger God. And in verse 10, we see a reason why our big God designed it that salvation would come through a suffering Savior. And here's the reason. God designed it that salvation would come through a suffering Savior, watch it, because that lines up with his prerogative as the sovereign God of creation. He has the prerogative to do that. He's the creator. He can fashion and sculpt and mold his salvation any way he wants. And he has designed his marvelous salvation to come to us through a suffering Savior. Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9 are such precious verses. God is speaking, and he says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Don't you love that? And yet we can be like the ant who was in the elephant's ear. And the elephant went across a bridge and there was no small shaking of the bridge. Whereupon the ant said, man, I really rocked the boat. Sometimes we act like that ant. If God only would do what I think. If God would only answer the prayer that I've told him how I want it answered. But his thoughts are not our thoughts and neither are our ways his ways, declares the Lord. And as heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts, God says. And so we need, whether we're looking at the Old or the New Testament, we need to see our God as being big, <laughs> vast, infinite. And the fact is, a suffering Savior is a God way which is far above our ways. A suffering Savior is a God thought which is way above our thoughts. Really, suffering Savior is like an oxymoron, a figure of speech where two terms seemingly contradict are put right beside each other. Suffering Savior, deafening silence, open secret, found missing. 
suffering Savior. Let's look at verse 10 again. For it was fitting for him, God the Father, for whom are all things and through whom are all things, bringing many sons to glory, that's you and me as believers in Jesus, to perfect the author of their salvation, that's Jesus, through sufferings. Clearly, God the Father in this verse is pointed out to be the creator, and as such, he's pointed out to be the sovereign over his creation, the ruler over his creation, the owner of all of his creation, the king of his creation. All of what has been made by he, the creator, has been made for him. He owns it. And he's made it all by the word of his mouth. And he keeps it all going. He's not like the deists. The founding fathers of the United States were largely deists. They believed in a God who was a clockmaker. And God made this universe, they said, as a beautiful clock. And he designed it, and he made it, and it worked. It It kept time. And then they say God walked away from the clock. That's not the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that God spoke into existence all that is in existence, and he's kept his loving and benevolent and all-wise and faithful hands upon his creation ever since. That includes you. And so this wonderful sovereign creator has made everything he has made for himself, and he keeps it all going. I was snorkeling this week at Jaws Beach, and I was having a good time until I saw Barracuda. And I know that that barracuda is fed by God, that he never goes hungry. He makes it. I was just grateful I wasn't God's food for him that day. I'm telling you what, we looked at each other for about five minutes. And I turned my ring that has a shiny fake stone in it, and I turned it inside. And I just stared at him, and he stared at me. And where I had to get out of the water was between, he was between me and that place. God sustains his creation. He looks after the animals he's made, the fish that he's made, the food they require. He's a hands-on creator. And this sovereign God of creation is the boss of his creation. There's not a rogue atom or molecule in all of his creation. And Every detail, every DNA strand, every detail of creation points to him. Points to the creator. Intelligent design of creation demands an intelligent creator designer. It all points to him. And we can be sure that this sovereign God of creation is never in heaven looking at your life and saying, boy, I didn't see that happening. Or, what am I going to do now? No, he is leading you. He is guiding you. He is loving you. He is saving you from your sins by a suffering Savior named Jesus who he sent in love. And so this sovereign God of creation, he rules his creation. He doesn't react. He has won every battle that's been fought thus far, and he is going to win every battle going forward. And such a sovereign creator 
I hope you realize he makes no improvable plans. You ought not to pray to him, Lord, did you ever think of this? He makes no improvable plans. He ought never to be second-guessed. He ought never to expect to be do-overs or to have a plan B. He has no eraser on the end of his pencil. He has no delete or backspace key on his keyboard. And so it's not right for us to question him with regard to a suffering Savior or with regard to an electric bill you face this week, but rather to be grateful to him, to trust him. Let's draw some parallels. The first parallel is this. The creation of God is totally of God. And similarly, the salvation of God is also totally of God. Second parallel, the creation took the spoken word of God. God, according to Genesis, spoke everything into existence by the word of his mouth. And he spoke everything into existence with nothing in existence. Ex nihilo. He created out of nothing. He created everything. That's a big is. And so... If we know that creation took the spoken word of God, then similarly, salvation took the incarnate word of God. It took Christmas. It took the eternal second person of the Godhead taking on human flesh, 100% human fused to 100% deity. God's that big. And God, in Christ, has made peace with sinners like us using nothing that we as sinners brought to the table for the reconciliation. <laughs> there was a young Christian who gave testifying, testified to his salvation in a, his church service. Just a young Christian. And he went on about the things that God had done for him. And after the meeting, this older woman came up to him and said, but you only talked about God's part in your salvation. Why didn't you talk about your part in your salvation? So my part, I did all the sinning. That was my part. God did all the saving. Questioning that there would be a suffering Savior that the Creator has ordained is like claiming to know more than the MRI machine or walking into the Toyota assembly plant and telling them to replace a certain machine. And so... Hebrews 2.10, again, for it was fitting for him, for whom are all things, and through whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. Big idea, only main idea of this sermon. God designed it that salvation would come through a suffering Savior because that lines up with his prerogative as the sovereign God of creation, the creator. Now, we get into all kinds of problems when we shrink God. And none of us would wake up any morning and say, I'm just going to shrink God this today. I want a smaller God. But it creeps in. It creeps in through the influences of our life that aren't biblical. And all of a sudden, before we know it, we've shrunk God. And you know how you can know when you've shrunk God? 
Here are some symptoms. When you are given over to worry, when you are walking around every day discouraged, you've shrunk God. When you are trying to desperately control everything, you've shrunk God. If you don't pray, you're too busy to pray, you have shrunk God. Your view of God is too small. So let's close this sermon with some application. Now, my mother is a wonderful mother. She's 85 years old, God willing. If God spares her life, she and dad are coming down to see us in January. They just love this congregation and love this country. But my mother had the practice occasionally, when I needed it, of grabbing me by this ear and getting my attention. The questions I'm about to ask you is like my mother. There are some questions the Holy Spirit is going to grab you by the ear and say, are you listening? Are you going to answer this question? So watch for that. The Holy Spirit grabbing you by the ear. Question, do I view God as being too small? Question, am I living as though God is limited? Do I ever think that God needs my help? Do I accept that God has the prerogative to do whatever he wants because he knows what's best? Do, in that light, do I accept that God could be the one allowing my singleness? That God could be the one that's allowed my widowhood or my illness? Do you accept the fact that God may be planning your losses or causing your failures to teach you that your wealth in him far exceeds any wealth you have in currency? And to show you that he's more than strong enough and more than adequate like the Atlantic Ocean was to the washerwoman on the bluffs of Ireland? Do I accept, ask yourself, do I accept that he sent a Savior for me who suffered? Do I accept that if Jesus suffered, why should I not expect to suffer? Or do I pray asking God to show me his will so that I will do it no matter what? Or could it be that you're treating God's will like an eBay purchase? 30 days, no questions asked, trial of the purchase. You get this at eBay purchase, and for 30 days, you can figure out whether or not you like it enough to keep it. If you don't like it, just put it in the box that came in. It ships back to the, to the vendor, and you're done. Some people treat the will of God like that. They say, let me know the will of God, Father, and I'll just try it out for 30 days. doesn't make me happy, doesn't fulfill me, doesn't scratch where I itch, then I'll just send it back to heaven. God's will doesn't work that way. He reveals his will in his word to his child who's prepared to do his will before they know what his will is. Is that you? Or ask this. Do I want his way more than my way or more than any other way? 
even if his way makes me look weird. (laughs) If you've never looked weird obeying God, then you're not fully obeying God. I mean, Abraham looked weird. Jeremiah certainly looked weird. Hosea looked weird. John the Baptist looked weird. Paul looked weird. And the Lord Jesus himself looked weird to people who weren't in on the relationship he had with his father. Are you, you ask of yourself, am I going to do what God wants me to do even if it makes me look weird, even if it costs me, even if it's inconvenient, and even if it leaves me open to being misunderstood? Questions go on. You've been grabbed by the ear yet? I have. Do you somehow think that God ever needs or wants your advice? There is no button in the margin of my Bible on any page. When you read the passage, there's a button. Press here to give the reader, give his input. God doesn't need my input. His input is what I need. Do I expect God to always be predictable? In this nice little box... Very tame, very predictable. Or do you allow for the miracle that he wants to do? Or do you accept the paradoxes of the Christian life? The way up is down. To be greatest, you are the least. To live, you must die. Are you accepting of the paradoxes of the Christian life? Are you okay with the will and the way of God to, humanly speaking, be illogical. Do I admit that God's plans are unimprovable on God's character, on God's promises, on time, on point, on Scripture, perfect, unimprovable? How big is your God? There was a story of a, a woman who was on a cruise ship. She was a very frugal woman. And she'd be on the deck while uh, the dining room was open. She'd be on the deck with crackers and cheddar cheese that she would brought from her home before she got on the ship. And after about four days of seeing her be on the deck during the mealtimes eating saltine crackers and cheddar cheese that she'd brought from home, another passenger said, may I ask you, you're always eating saltine crackers and cheddar cheese. May I ask you, you know, why? She goes, I can't afford the food in the dining room. He said, oh, madam, it's paid for. You've paid for it. It's all paid for. God is big. All-inclusive. <laughs> Don't feel you have to eat on crackers and cheddar cheese, although there's nothing wrong with that. I like that. 
have a big enough view of God. For it was fitting for him for whom are all things and through whom are all things in bringing many sons to glory to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. Pray with me. Lord, we thank you for your bigness that the universe cannot contain you for your immensity, for your infinitude, and for your wondrous plan, unlikely plan, to send us a suffering Savior. Lord, may we see you as big as you are in our daily decisions this week, in our marriages, at our places of studying at school, in our workplaces, in our church family, in our neighborhoods, in our travels. May we see you as big enough and as big as you truly are. Thank you that the word of God helps us to do that. That we're not left to our own devices to try to conjure up how big you might be. But you've told us in love And you've written the account of your bigness in the blood of your son. Thank you, Lord. We of all people are most blessed. And we pray these things in your precious name and for your sake. Amen.